Is that not second-degree murder? I don't know the elements of murdering Alabama. It's definitely not good. I don't, um, it, it's one of the worst but, political crimes I've ever heard of. Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And today I am joined by Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Happy to be here. And also joining us today is Megan Payne. Megan, how are you? Hey, Kyle. I'm doing well. So we have a packed show for you guys today. First, we're going to share an interview that I did earlier this week with State Senator Renee Unterman. She's a Republican candidate for Congress in Georgia 7. And we sat down to talk about her views on the issues, whether she thinks the heartbeat abortion bill is constitutional, and her reactions to the impeachment inquiry focused on President Trump's efforts to pressure Ukraine to investigate a political rival. So we'll share that interview with you first this week. Then it's been about a month since Governor Kemp posted an opening for applicants to apply to replace Senator Johnny Isaacson, who will be stepping down at the end of the year. We haven't really done a deep dive on this application process yet. Uh, So let's take a look at some of the folks who have applied and talk about what kind of candidate Republicans may want to nominate for this coming Senate vacancy. Keep in mind that this person is going to have to run again in a wild jungle primary uh, on in November on presidential election day in November of 2020. Uh, but first, we wanted to update you guys on a few uh, pieces of news that have come down since the last time we recorded. And breaking news on Tuesday night as we're recording is that Georgia will be hosting the November debate between the Democratic candidates for president. I don't think we know where it's going to be yet, but it presumably will be somewhere in the Atlanta area. And at this point, as of today, from what I saw earlier today, there's going to be at least eight candidates on the stage. Andrew Yang was the most recent Democrat to qualify for the next debate. Um, so let's just go around real quick and get quick reactions. What do y'all think about uh, Georgia getting to host the Democratic debate next month? I'm super excited and I hope I get to go. Yeah, I think it's great. It's a sign that the party is taking Georgia seriously. You know, they, they can't go to every state during the primary debate. So I'm happy we got picked. Um, you know, this is something I've been seeing more and more. Elizabeth Warren's campaign's been talking a lot about how they're looking at Georgia. Joe Biden's the same thing. So I'm happy that we're seeing some uh, more obvious signs that they are thinking about Georgia in the general election. Yeah, there's a, a couple of other signs, too, that Georgia is getting the attention of national Democrats. Uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi sat down with the AJC editorial board and did a long interview with them late last week. Um, and she talked about protecting Lucy McBath. She talked a lot about impeachment. Um, it's it's not every day that the leader of the Democratic Party, at least among the non-presidential candidates, is uh, sitting in the AJC editorial boardroom. Um, so lots of eyes on Georgia from national Democrats, um, which I think makes people who were frustrated about the lack of resources that have come to our state so far uh, happy to see these new developments. So that's our first piece of news. Second piece of news that I just wanted to highlight, uh, we didn't give much coverage to this, but there was a special election for a state house district down in Coweta County. And it was a race that ended up being between two Republicans. No Democrats made this final runoff, which is not surprising. It's a relatively conservative district. I mean, it was a race to replace David Stover, who left the legislature. Uh, But it became a proxy fight over conservative grassroots feelings about House Speaker David Ralston. And the candidate who ultimately won, Philip Singleton, basically made much of his campaign around being a critic of the House Speaker. You may remember from our coverage earlier this year of legislative session that uh, Speaker Ralston got a lot of fire from his own Republican colleagues over an AJC investigation about how he handled legislative leave, where for court cases where he was a defense attorney and where he was where he was defending people accused of uh, some pretty unsavory things. Um, so it's just interesting to see that proxy fight continue to play out and that in a relatively obscure, very low turnout election that probably was made up primarily of the most enthusiastic Republican voters, uh, that enthusiasm went behind a critic of the current House Speaker. And then our final update this week, Megan, there were important oral arguments today at the beginning of the October term for the Supreme Court on an LGBT 
on an LGBTQ case. Can you tell us a little bit about what went down at the Supreme Court today? Absolutely. So uh, these are the first cases. They're being uh, heard as a group. We've uh, mentioned them previously on the podcast. Um, And they're the first cases that this group of justices has heard regarding LGBTQ issues. And the outcome may be an indication of what we can expect from these justices in future. Um, One of the big highlights is that the text of the existing law and the intent of the existing law are possibly at odds with each other. So that's going to be very interesting for this group of justices to grapple with, uh, several of whom are textualists. Um, And essentially, a decision against the plaintiffs could actually destroy existing employee rights, including um, safeguards against sex stereotyping, sexual harassment, those sorts of things. So especially women, but generally all working Americans could be affected by the outcome of these cases, not just LGBTQ working Americans. Um, And in case you forgot, Bostock versus Clayton County originated here in the Atlanta metro. So um, that's pretty interesting. As of today, as of kind of close of business today for SCOTUS, the justices are very clearly divided. Um, Things could hinge on Gorsuch. He appeared sympathetic, but also was concerned about um, some social upheaval that could come from a ruling for the plaintiffs. But we probably won't have a decision until 2020. So kind of hang on to your hats, folks. We'll see what happens. But there's also, Megan, there's kind of two ways to look at this case, right? There's the legal issues at play here about the interpretation of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act and whether it currently prohibits uh, discrimination on the basis of sex under existing law. But then there's pending legislation that also weighs in on this topic, depending on how the court case comes out. Is that right? That's right. Um, well, it may or may not depend on how the court case comes out. All of that just really remains to be seen. But the Equality Act is currently sitting in the Senate um, with the Senate Judiciary Committee and has been there since May. It was passed by the, passed by the House of Representatives and um, then was transferred over to the Senate and referred to the Judiciary Committee. And if that bill were to pass, it could definitely solidify some of these LGBTQ concerns for LGBTQ workers. But since that is just sitting waiting for the Senate to hear it, that law is not necessarily in play. I think it's certainly one of those things that if you're somebody who would like to see protections for LGBTQ Americans in the workplace, who controls the Senate after the 2020 elections, whether it's Democrats or Republicans, is going to weigh heavily on whether or not that legislation is going to get heard. Precisely. So contact your senator if you care about that Uh, the Equality Act being heard and becoming law, let your senator know that they need to hear it. Obviously, that won't have any bearing on the case in front of the court, but it could be another way to protect LGBTQ rights. All right. So with that, let's turn it over to my discussion with State Senator Renee Unterman. She is a candidate for Georgia's 7th Congressional District. All right. Joining the podcast is State Senator Renee Unterman. She is the representative of Senate District 45 in Northern Gwinnett County, and she is a candidate for Georgia's 7th Congressional District. Senator Unterman, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Kyle. I appreciate you having me on. So for our listeners who may not be familiar with you, could you start out by just telling us a little bit about your background and and what has led you to run for this seat in the 7th Congressional District? Sure. I'm a state senator and I represent Northern Gwinnett County, like you said. Um, It's Buford, Sugar Hill, Brazelton, goes down to Swanee, Lawrenceville. And I've represented the state Senate in the state Senate since 2002. And before that, I served in the House. And I actually spent uh, 10 years in local government. I was the mayor of the city of Loganville, and I was also a Gwinnett County Commissioner. So I've spent a lot of time in local government and state government. And that's exactly why I'm trying to run and will run for Congress and talk about kitchen table politics. We rolled out our campaign for the 7th Congressional District on June the 6th, and we started talking about what matters to families. I started out in local government and I always went door to door and talking to families and what really matters to them. And some of the things that I found out a long time ago are still the same things that matter today, whether it's about security, homeland security, having a strong military, 
I'm known for working with our local law enforcement officers. I've really supported the back the blue. Talking about the economy, our economy is doing really well now. We want it to continue to grow. Health care, that's one of my specialty issues. Um, I've been a nurse for a very long time, most of my life, a former nurse. Education, the 7th Congressional District is known for its educational opportunities, whether it's in the K-12 through or technical education or the Board of Regents. And we want to make sure that in the 7th District that education continues to be a priority. That's one of the reasons why all these families moved to Gwinnett and Forsyth County is because we have excellent education opportunities. And then we get to some of our kind of uh, problem spots and transportation bubbles to the top every time because everyone in the 7th District has problems with transportation. Yeah, so I want to dive in on some of these issues here in a minute. But as you mentioned, you have served in the state Senate since 2002, and, and you've served in a big capacity in local governments as well. What are some of the lessons that you take from your time serving in local and state government that you can take to Washington? And and how do you think any of that experience would help you approach bridging the political divide? Because it seems as you move up from local government to state government to the federal government, that that partisan divide gets much sharper as you go up. So what lessons do you take from that experience? Well, I think that it is very partisan at the state level, too. And I've learned to be a very good street fighter. And that's a lot of the reasons that I had a lot of people ask me to run for the 7th Congressional District, because they know that I can win, that they know that I know how to debate. All you have to do is look at my debates on the floor of the Senate. They know that I'm in it to win. They know that I defend conservative principles and values. But most importantly, I think what they know is they know that I have courage and it's courage to do the right thing. And whether you're trying to reach across the aisle, you know, on the state level, you have to negotiate and we do a very good job. There's a reason why the state of Georgia is one of the best business states in the country. We've been right six years, I believe, in a row that we're the best place to do business. Um, Yeah, we do have partisan debates, but we also run state government. And that's one of the lessons that I've learned to get to the federal level is to continue to keep the ball rolling. So if you're elected next November to represent Georgia 7, chances are Republicans probably had a pretty good night, including possibly reelecting President Trump and maybe even retaking the U.S. House. What do you think should be the top priority of a Republican-led Congress in 2021? Well, I think it's those issues that we already talked about, but mainly it's supporting President Trump. I think, like you said, we've gotten into such partisan issues that we have to think about who is the president of the United States and follow his lead. And we're doing pretty doggone good with the economy and how things are going. We have the lowest unemployment rate in a 50-year history. The economy is doing well, and we need to follow President Trump. Uh, He's got some great ideas, and he's shown in the last three years that he can be a true leader. And that's one of my goals is to continue to support him. So probably the biggest legislative achievement for Republicans during President Trump's first term was the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017, which was a package of tax reductions for personal and corporate income taxes. And since the passage of TCJA, unemployment has remained low. It's It's at a record low level that you've mentioned before, but wage growth has been sluggish in some areas and some sectors of the economy like manufacturing and agriculture are facing some significant difficulties. So what should be the top priority on economic security for the next Republican Congress? Well, I think it's some of the same things that President Trump has done and the Congress has done with cutting taxes. And we've also done that on the state level. We cut the state income tax from 6% to 5.5%. And if you combine that with the federal cuts, I think that's why you see one of the most important getting us out of the recession and doing much better. The thing that concerns me the most is the $22 trillion deficit that the federal government has. And I think that's one of the things that needs to be tackled. And you say, well, how do you do that? And um, I'm very familiar with that because I've written the state appropriation budget for social services for many years now. And I see a lot of fraud, waste and abuse. And I think those are some of the historical institutional knowledge that I can take 
to D.C. to help the federal government. Uh, the state of Georgia is doing very, very well. We have a rainy day fund balance of $2.5 billion, and I want to continue to see uh, the federal government move in the same direction. You know, the other thing I'm concerned about is tariffs and the implications that it's going to have on the economy. But, you know, when you look at President Trump and you look at his leadership and his skills and his abilities, I feel very confident that the economy is going to continue to stay strong. So one problem that has challenged Georgia policymakers for years has been improvements in our transportation system that would reduce traffic in the metro Atlanta area. And many of those traffic woes now extend up into the 7th District. So do you think that there should be a federal role in reducing traffic in metro Atlanta and and other large metro areas across the country? And if so, what kinds of investments should Congress be making to deal with this issue? Well, transportation, like you said, is probably one of the top issues in the 7th Congressional District. And I think Rob Woodall did a very good job when he uh, got appropriated additional money for Georgia 400 and to extend the lanes. One of my big beefs that I've been in seeing firsthand in the state of Georgia is congressional balancing. And that's where money flows down, according to the congressional district. So when you're in South Georgia, deep southwest Georgia, and they get the same amount of money and what we call it in the General Assembly is roads to nowhere. Yeah, we need east-west connectors going across the state in South Georgia. But when I'm sitting up here in the 7th Congressional District and it takes me two hours to get downtown in a regular commute, people cannot commute four hours a day and work an eight-hour day or a 10-hour day. It's just not feasible. And that's one of my main priorities. But I definitely disagree with congressional balancing and uh, want to see the money go where it is needed not into unnecessary roads. We've put the toll lanes in uh, and we've extended Georgia 400. We still have major concerns on uh, Georgia 316, Highway 316 that goes on the Athens corridor. I'd like to see more money put into that. But transportation and the federal government, they're a key component because we draw down on the state level federal dollars. People always They think that it's state dollars that we're spending on these roads, but most of it is federal dollars and making sure that Georgia gets our fair share. We're a Sunbelt state. We're a growing state. We're 11 million people. We deserve that money and we want to keep our economy going. And transportation is one of our key sectors to keep it going. So the other major legislative push for Republicans in Trump's first term was the ultimately unsuccessful effort to repeal the Affordable Care Act. Should Republicans take control of Congress again in 2021, would you like to see the ACA repealed and replaced with something else? And if so, what does that new health care plan look like to you? Well, I think the president is on the right way that he's going with transparency, trying to reel in prescriptions prescription drug costs when I'm on the campaign trail. That's one of the main things I hear about is the cost of prescriptions. People just can't afford it. They also can't afford their insurance premiums. Yeah, they may have insurance, but they just can't afford the deductibles. So health care is a, a key component, uh, whether it's trans, uh, transparency, whether it's competition, uh, cost and access. One of the things that I've worked on is the opioid crisis. I think we're doing a good job on the state level. We've uh, implemented recovery centers and changed our laws about access to uh, drugs like Narcan that are drug reversal drugs. Um, We've still got some regulatory burdens in the state with a certificate of need. And one of the things, uh, importantly, that I want to work on on the federal level is mental health issues, whether it's mental health Uh, access to care for children or access to care for veterans. We have a very high suicide rate among veterans, and I think that's a real sham. It's it's really, really bad for our veterans that have served for so many years, and they should have access to mental health services. One push on health care among Republican state governments that are hoping to seek more authority on this from Congress is the institution of work requirements in Medicaid. Do you think that work requirements in Medicaid would inhibit addressing some of the mental health issues that you're looking to work looking to work on in Congress? 
No, I don't think so, because we have a waiver system that if you have those mental health disabilities and you can prove that you have it, it's just like with food stamps. If you can prove that you're disabled, then you get a waiver out of it. No, I don't think it would be. We've had those bills in the General Assembly, and I've always supported them. I have nothing wrong with people going to work. You know, I've worked and my family's worked our whole lives, and I have absolutely no problem with people going to work. As a matter of fact, I think it's better to work than it is to sit at home, and you have more problems if you sit at home. So immigration has been the policy that maybe has divided the parties the most during Trump's first term. Do you think that significant congressional action on immigration is needed? And if so, what are some of your priorities on this? I definitely do. And, you know, I've been on the campaign trail for a couple of months now. And what I have heard that is that, you know, we're one of the most diverse counties in Gwinnett County uh, in the state of Georgia and also in the nation. And we have no problem absolutely with legal immigrants. It's the illegal Im- uh, immigration. And I think the president is correct on building a wall and support uh, securing the southern border. What I hear from people that have immigrated here is they're very resentful. They have paid a lot of money to get their status up to $30,000 with immigration attorneys, and then they have to wait six, seven, eight years before they get their status. And I think it, uh, the immigration system needs to be reformed. That's part of the problem is the length of time that it takes. But I definitely think Congress should continue to work on immigration and come together and try to solve the problems. Do you think that a key component of an immigration proposal in Congress should change the number of legal immigrants admitted to the country each year? In general, do you think we should be admitting more legal immigrants or fewer legal immigrants or or maybe roughly the same? I think the most important thing, and and according to our security, is securing the southern border. That's the most important thing. And one of the things that I'm very proud of in Gwinnett County is we have a very strong sheriff, uh, Sheriff Butch Conway, and he, he has supported the 287G program for several years now, I think maybe five or six years, and I have been there side by side with him. And I think that when you look at law enforcement supporting the local law enforcement and uh, also on the federal level, that this is a very good program. It's a good way to uh, tamp down on crime and those people that are here illegally, getting them back out of the state of Georgia. So on your website, you present yourself as a conservative fighter. In 2019, what does being a conservative fighter mean to you? Well, the most important thing it means to me, there's several people in this race, and it's very easy to go on the Internet and read what the uh, words are that, you know, moves the dial on a certain issue. But I'm completely different. I'm a person that's been elected a long time. I have a proven conservative record. You can look at my issues on on. Uh, whether it's gun control or to immigration or anything else. And I have a record and you can look it up. It's easy to say what you stand for, but when you look back in the history and see how people have actually voted and see how they perform, when you look at issues like the heartbeat bill and you see a legislator that steps out of the box that doesn't follow the norm, that you know that I've got the courage that I'll do the right thing that I'll have the conviction to do the right thing, and I'll do the right thing every time. And I think that's what sets me apart. So a value that seems to be important to conservatives is a limited government and the protection of personal liberty. But one place where conservatives have sought to leverage government power is on the issue of abortion. You were the sponsor of the six-week abortion ban, which was signed by Governor Kemp earlier this year, and have championed pro-life causes throughout your time in the Senate. So what makes the issue of abortion one that is worthy of of government intervention in this way, worthy of a prohibition in this way, especially when public opinion on it is so divided? Well, public opinion may be divided, but among conservatives, it's definitely not divided. 
And I have always been pro-life, and I'm very proud of that record. I've written almost every pro-life bill that has come through the Senate since 2002. I wrote the Women's Right to Know. I wrote the revision to it. I wrote the ultrasound law that requires an ultrasound to be done on every woman before an abortion. And it really was the culmination of my service in the Senate with House Bill 481. I believe that you should protect life in the womb and also life after birth. And if you look at my record and you look at my uh, stance on the appropriation bill in the General Assembly, you see that I've taken care of a lot of victims and a lot of children's needs. And I think they deserve protection. They don't have a voice. They don't get to go to the polls and vote. And that we need champions. And I've always considered myself a champion of that to be able to stand up for those who do not have a voice. And uh, I'm very proud of uh, Governor Kemp. And I'm also very proud that hopefully this bill is going to make it to the Supreme Court. We work very hard on it and uh, look forward to seeing its progression. Do you believe that that legislation is constitutional and will be found to be constitutional in the Supreme Court? Yes, I do. We we work very diligently. We did a lot of revisions. We strengthen our stance on personhood, and we feel very strongly about it. Unfortunately, when Obama appoints federal judges, we knew what was going to happen with this last round, and that's why we would like to see it to go all the way to the Supreme Court. So last week, President Trump told reporters in the White House driveway that China and Ukraine should both investigate Joe Biden and his son Hunter over Hunter's business dealings. Now, the president has significant authority over the conduction of foreign policy, but you as a member of Congress would have oversight authority over the president. Do you think that the president's call for an investigation of the Bidens is an appropriate use of the president's authority? And do you think it's worthy of some form of congressional oversight? Well, unfortunately, I think Nancy Pelosi needs to accept the fact that the president was elected three years ago. President Trump was elected three years ago, and I think she's trying to undermine, and I think it's her pals in Congress that are doing a pretty good job. But I think they're trying to undermine the presidents and wasting the taxpayer money. I think they're wasting time, and I think they're eroding the public trust. Um, It's a witch hunt. That's all I can say. It's a partisan witch hunt. Unfortunately, I've seen it happen on the state level. It's absolutely ridiculous. And, you know, I've been out there on the campaign trail and I've been talking to people almost every single day, not almost, but every single day. And I don't see people up in arms. They're not talking about what Congress is doing. They're not talking about what the president did. They're talking about the economy. They're talking about going to school, like we were talking about transportation. It's just a total waste of time on Congress' behalf. And all they're trying to do is undermine the president. And I think they need to move on. And uh, I will say and give kudos to Representative Doug Collins, who's in the district right above me in Gainesville. And uh, he's doing a fabulous job. I'm very proud of him. I served with him in the House. Uh, When he was in the House, I was in the Senate. We worked a lot together, and I think he's been the shining star. And uh, I think he's absolutely correct in calling this out for what it is, which is a witch hunt. So we've covered a lot of ground today, but before we go, are there any other issues or topics that you'd like to talk about? Well, I want to get back to the reason why I am running, and it gets back to those kitchen table politics and whether it's talking about those mental health issues that I've championed forever, whether it's talking about the opioid crisis, which is a real uh, threat here in the 7th Congressional District, or if we're talking about the issue of human trafficking. I've worked on that issue and was on the ground floor when it started 11 years ago here in the state of Georgia. I've always been the one that had the courage to step out of the box to tackle the big issues, whether they were social issues or infrastructure issues. And I look forward to being able to do that uh, in Congress. Uh, When people ask, who is Renee Unterman? 
they always say Renee Unterman has the courage to do the right thing. And I, I want to, especially when I go to Washington, D.C., never forget where I came from. I started out as a small town mayor and uh, I always did the right thing when I was the mayor. And as I've worked my way up through the system, I think it's that courage, it's that tenacity, it's that fighting for conservative values. That's exactly what is going to put me in Washington, D.C. Well, Senator Unterman, we appreciate you taking some time to talk with PeachPod this morning. If people would like to learn more about your campaign, how could they do that? They just go to ReneeUnterman.org, and I have a good website. And uh, I just appreciate you interviewing me today and getting the word out and making sure that the 7th Congressional District stays red. All right. Well, Renee Unterman is a candidate for Georgia's 7th Congressional District. Senator Unterman, thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you so much, Kyle. All right. So thank you to State Senator Renee Unterman for joining the podcast. She is in that Republican primary uh, to hopefully be the Republican nominee, or she she hopes that she will be the Republican nominee and attempt to replace Rob Woodall, who is retiring and leaving that 7th District seat open. Um, I wanted to touch on one thing from her interview before we go. So Georgia 6 and Georgia 7, and, and Unterman's running in Georgia 7, are probably going to be two of the most competitive congressional races in the entire country in 2020. And I asked her during that interview about what she thought about the heartbeat abortion ban that was passed last legislative session. And I thought it was interesting that she is running in it. She is not running away from that bill at all. She fully embraced it in our discussion. She went through a list of her legislative history, and she called it basically the culmination of her service in the Senate to get this final abortion ban done. I think that in a very competitive district, this very divisive issue is probably going to be one at the center of this election should be should she be the Republican nominee. Um, Luke, what did you think of her approach to answering that question on the abortion legislation and how central this issue might be in those congressional races uh, next year? I think it'll definitely be a central issue for that campaign. Those are two districts I don't think her position would be as undeniably popular as it could be in some other areas. But I think really, you know, she's trying to win the Republican primary right now, and she would be disingenuous if she did not embrace this piece of legislation and others like it because she has spent a lot of time at the state capitol supporting those issues. So I'm pretty unsurprised that she's taken her uh, you know, this route. And then the other thing is, I mean, there's really no other way for her to answer your question about if she thinks it's constitutional or not, because it's a really hard argument to make before the Supreme Court, you know, beginning. It's like justices, this law is unconstitutional. <laughs> so, of course, <laughs> there, she's going to say it is constitutional. Uh, or under the current jurisprudence, there's pretty much no way uh, they could find it constitutional. Uh, but, of course, they could change uh, what the you know, precedent is and, and overturn some cases and then make it constitutional. But as of, as things stand right now, it's definitely not. Megan, what did you think of her response on this question? You know my stance on abortion and abortion laws. So I'm, from her perspective, I completely understand where she's coming from. From my perspective, I obviously find the work that she's done concerning. Yeah, I I think that this is, interesting in this moment because so Georgia and a few other states passed these really strict, really restrictive abortion bans earlier this year. Uh, But I was reading a story earlier this week about Tennessee, which also considered a ban like this, uh, but they ended up punting the legislation to study committees in the summer uh, because there were pro-life groups in that state that felt that these super restrictive abortion bans basically stood no chance in front of the Supreme Court, and that the better way to pursue overturning Roe v. Wade for for people who want to do that would be to do so through smaller scale legislation, um, where, you know, as, as we mentioned in the intro, we're at the beginning of the October term for the Supreme Court. And one of the other cases that they're hearing is a Louisiana law that uh, required admitting privileges and uh, 
placed restrictions on abortion clinics that was similar to a law passed in Texas in 2016 that was overturned by the court. But that law was overturned before Kavanaugh and Gorsuch were put on the court. Some anti-abortion advocates think that an approach like that is more likely to change the law as it exists now compared to this sort of Hail Mary approach uh, with these with this uh, more restrictive abortion ban. So I think it's it'll be interesting to watch. But I it you know if you're if you're somebody who cares about uh, the right to choose and the access to reproductive health care, the developments with the current court are very concerning. So let's move on to our uh, second and final big topic for this week. So we are now about a month into this process where Republicans are applying to be appointed to be the next senator from Georgia to replace Johnny Isaacson at the beginning of next year. We've got some high profile names that have already uh, thrown their hat into this people like Representative Doug Collins from the 9th Congressional District. Jan Jones, who is the Speaker Pro Tem in the state legislature, the top-ranking uh, Republican woman to ever serve in the legislature in Georgia's history. We have kind of a second tier of candidates, people like Jackie Cushman-Gingrich, Tom Price, Chuck F. Stration. These are uh, people who have served in state government or, or some in federal government in different capacities, or, or Jackie Cushman-Gingrich, who is Newt Gingrich's daughter and, and who is an author and a conservative voice. We've got a lot of candidates that have thrown their hats in. We've got 500 resumes that have been submitted, but really only probably a, hand, a handful of these are going to be seriously considered by the governor. Um, so we wanted to kind of catch everybody up on this process and, and get a sense of what the choice is that that sits before Governor Kemp at this point. And let's start with Doug Collins, who I think maybe is the most obvious one to talk about uh, for two reasons. Primarily, he's the highest ranking federal official who has applied so far. Um, the only one from the the only one who is currently serving in the congressional delegation who would be able to move up from the House to the Senate if he was to get appointed. Uh, but he is also one of President Trump's prominent defenders on the Judiciary Committee. He responded to Nancy Pelosi's interview with the AJC editorial board by saying that the current process that Democrats are pursuing in the impeachment inquiry of Donald Trump, that Nancy Pelosi was actually committing an abuse of her power by doing it in this way, which is language that echoes what Democrats are saying about President Trump's actions. What do we think about Doug Collins as a as a candidate as a chief defender of Trump and as uh, maybe sort of the next person in line uh, that has applied so far. Luke, what do you think about Doug Collins? Doug Collins is unquestionably the most conventional choice that Governor Kemp could choose out of all the people that have uh, applied, in my opinion. He is a like formidable campaigner. He's been in the House for a really long time. Uh, he is one of the better Trump defenders uh, on, on TV, I feel like, and he's been pretty consistent. So I think he would be very conventional, very safe. You know, I, I feel like if you ran a simulation of who got appointed a thousand times, Doug Collins would, would be there a lot. Um, that being said, Kemp hasn't always gone that route, and he's tended to appoint some people out of left field before. So that kind of as an argument of why it wouldn't be Doug Collins. I feel like if this was Governor Deal, like Doug Collins would kind of be a shoo-in um, for this. But uh, that being said, if he picks Doug Collins, that's Governor Kemp kind of just like doubling down on David Perdue and the idea of, you know, uh, picking someone like David Perdue. Uh, and they're going to just kind of run a base happy strategy and, you know, run run together that way. So... Uh, I, I won't be shocked if it's Doug Collins, um, just based on all those things. What do we think about it through the lens of the kind of Republican that, that Doug Collins is that, that you were speaking to, Luke? Uh, when I was on Political Rewind earlier this week, we talked about this a little bit, and Buddy Darden, former congressman from Cobb County, said that Governor Kemp should not want to nominate twins, so he shouldn't want to nominate somebody who was just like Purdue. But Doug Collins maybe fills this role of being Purdue's twin in some ways. Megan, what what would your reaction be to Republicans running two big defenders of Trump and conservatives who would probably run kind of a rural first strategy 
uh, running those two candidates at the same time in 2020. This is going to be a bit of a weird take on this, but some of the work that I've done in diversity and inclusion, which obviously is not exactly related to what we're talking about, but it proves that you actually get better decisions and are more successful, especially in business, with a more diverse uh, uh, group of people making those decisions. So this just kind of goes to that. If you have two senators who are so totally alike, they're just going to create this echo chamber between the two of them and between anyone that has a stake in this in Georgia, you're not going to have that diversity for decision-making. You're not going to have that other perspective that while it may be an additional conservative perspective, um, it's not what Isaacson offers to Purdue in the sense that Isaacson has experienced crossing the aisle. Isaacson is from kind of a different era of politics. Isaacson has a different background than Purdue. You're not going to get this uh, with Collins. And it's actually just bad business. Yeah, I don't know. I I think it's interesting, the choice that lays in front of uh, Governor Kemp here. I almost lean the other way in that two candidates who have similar strengths and similar approaches may be the best execution for Republicans of the current strategy that they have. I mean, when you look at what's going on related to the impeachment inquiry, Republicans, if you can get them on the record, and and there are some who are not on the record, and there are a few like Mitt Romney who are not responding in this way, but Republicans are largely defending the president against the impeachment inquiry. They take on the sort of aggrieved feeling that the president has and that the president has basically transferred through the entire Republican Party. And I think that it sets up this interesting contrast to the way Democrats treated President Obama during some of his most unpopular moments. Now, to be clear, Obama never did things did things of the kind that President Trump is alleged to have done, and that some of this evidence suggests he has done in soliciting foreign interference in elections. But Democrats had to run to statewide elections in Georgia and in other places in 2010 and in 2014, where Barack Obama was not very popular. And Democratic candidates largely shied away from having President Obama come do events with them. They didn't want to be attached to the Obama-Pelosi agenda. Republicans, on the other hand... (laughs) That was perfect I heard a, timing. I heard a response to that one. Republicans, on the other hand, despite having a president who is historically unpopular and is unpopular in a very consistent way when you look across approval polls, have fully rallied around him and are embracing him and, and just making Democrats out to be to be the enemy. And I think that if you nominate twins instead of nominating two people who have distinct visions of Republican politics, you can sort of combine forces and um, maybe keep out a spoiler Republican who would fracture the Republican electorate. Well, sure, but that's not a sustainable plan. Like, yeah, yeah, you can get a whole lot done in advance, but then what? Or not not advance, like you can get a whole lot done at the front end of things. And then what? Like, I, I don't know. I think it's I think it's a bad idea. Even if you even if the senator ends up being a staunch Republican, having a staunch Republican that is different from the one that's already a senator is just better business. Well, that I think there therein lies some of the danger for Republicans that if this strategy ultimately is not successful, you've kind of gone in on it if you nominate twins. Potentially somebody who would be not a twin to David Perdue. Uh, would maybe be somebody like Jan Jones. She's the House Speaker pro tem in the state legislature. She represents a different coalition than than the places in Georgia where Purdue was the strongest, where Governor Kemp was the strongest in his 2018 election. She represents, uh, I believe, North Fulton County in the suburbs. Um, She is a woman, which is, there is currently only one female Republican who who is serving as a statewide elected official. All of the other officials for Republicans statewide are men at this point. Luke, what does Jan Jones bring to the table? And, and do you think that, what do you think of her potentially being 
a candidate who would run maybe somewhat in contrast with Purdue if she was the one to get the appointment from Governor Kemp. To kind of play off what uh, you and Megan were discussing, I feel like Doug Collins is the trying to win the last war choice in the sense that in 2014 and 2010, the Democrats that ran away from Obama got kind of slaughtered and the ones that sticked a little closer actually tended to do better. Um, And I think Jan Jones might be a riskier choice you know, if you're if you're thinking in that mindset, but also maybe a more successful choice at the same time, Jan Jones has been the second most powerful Republican in the state house for quite some time. She's been very successful. Uh, you know, most people consider her a pretty skilled legislator. So there's a lot of really positive reasons that Kemp could pick her. I mean, one just the fact that she is a woman and she's from the suburbs like that is literally like looking at the demographic data like that is where republicans are having so much problems uh and so like that you know she checks both of those boxes now that of course does not mean that all those voters will lockstep vote for her but she obviously knows how to talk to that constituency because she literally is that constituency um so that's a strength of hers and then the other strength Uh, I think she has is that she has done a lot of things at the state capitol that are just popular like you know there are some issues that just aren't political like everyone is okay with people fighting sex trafficking and like that is something Jan Jones has done and so as far as having some uh, really good achievements that she could talk about um, in a way that like could really go across the aisle I think she has a lot of those just because that is what happens in state government. If you're high up in leadership in state government, those issues come across. However, she's, of course, in the Georgia state government, so she also has been a key player in a lot of more controversial things that have happened, like the abortion ban. And so I I think as far as what will make the Republican base happy, I think Jan Jones does not check that box as strongly And I think on the other side, she's still going to piss off liberals a lot from things she's done. Where she really could potentially pick up some ground is still being a really hardcore Republican, not being exactly what uh, David Perdue is. Um, One thing I think is important to point out at this point is that more and more the statewide results are going the same way as for um, president and senators. And I think... Um, the last time where you had two Senate seats up at the same time and they went in different directions was like in the 60s or 70s. So it's been a really, really long time either way. And I think more likely than not, whichever way one, like one Senate seat goes, that's the way the other one goes. And so I think there's a lot of risk and reward here because... If you, you know, double down on the Doug, you know, on the Doug Collins, David Perdue strategy, then maybe that's how you win, because that's obviously what Trump's going to do. Or do you expand your electorate by picking Jan Jones and maybe people like Jan Jones and they're like, oh, well, she likes David Perdue. So I guess I'll vote for David Perdue, too. And it's really hard to like do the the social calculus and campaign calculus to figure out like which equation gets you to victory. But that's that I kind of think whoever they pick is going to be kind of in one of those two categories. Are they in the David Perdue, Doug Collins category or the Jan Jones category? So do we think that these Senate races, particularly since they occur in a presidential year, do we think that they would be driven by sort of the personalities and the types of Republicans that whoever the appointed person is, and, and we obviously know the type of Republican that that David Perdue is, and we know the type of Republican that Donald Trump is. Um, Or could some of the other things that have gone on, like the abortion ban legislation that Democrats at the state legislative level are going to key in on, could these races ultimately become about some of those external things? Because, you know, we we talked briefly about Renee Unterman uh, in her full supporter and her full-throated support of the legislation that she sponsored in the Senate and that she worked her career for. Jan Jones also voted for the heartbeat abortion ban. Karen Handel, who may end up being the Republican nominee in Georgia 6, I think she has decently strong uh, anti-abortion credentials among Republicans, despite the fact that it's possible for Republicans in the suburbs to have 
to have a female candidate who has won elections before in both the sixth and the seventh and for the Senate seat, although Jane Jones hasn't won statewide, um, but to have female Republicans who have been successful, but to have their races be about things that could potentially undermine their appeal. But do you think that this tug and tug of war between personality versus substantive issues, do you, is there any way to sort of tell now what kinds of races these races are going to be, Megan? At this point, I'm just waiting to see how things shake out. I'm not sure I'm going to form any solidly held opinions just yet. I'm concerned about the candidates. I'm concerned about the fact that I really want Isaacson to ultimately be replaced by a Democrat. And I think that that's probably not going to happen, although I'm holding out hope. So I'm just kind of sitting back and watching at the moment. I think the other thing is, Kyle, is even if we knew who was going to be picked today, there's so many things in between now and the heat of campaign season I kind of think it really depends on the national environment because if, you know, the Supreme Court makes a lot of decisions that put state government into uh, everyone's mind and everyone's focus, then like Jan Jones's record is far more vulnerable than Doug Collins's record. And, you know, I, I think if President Trump becomes more of a liability than an asset, then you would want Jan Jones in that situation rather than Doug Collins. And so... Thinking about it that way, I think I think it's just way too early. But if you are, you know, Governor Brian Kemp, you're you're having to make those choices and think about those things. This always makes me wonder. I I know there isn't maybe a lot of supporting evidence for this as a strategy, but you know, a lot of times when you appointed a sen- when you appointed somebody to fill a Senate seat for a short term, whether it was when a sent you know it was it was common for. Or I think it was somewhat common for when a senator would die that you might appoint their spouse to fill their seat for a short time, um, or you would appoint somebody who's sort of above politics, but who is just simply a representative of the state to be the person who holds that seat until an election takes place. Nobody has ever said, unless we said it on this podcast before, I've never heard anybody else say that like Governor Deal would be... I think I mentioned that. I, I can't remember. It might have been off mic, but I, I think the reason why they wouldn't do that is that we're no longer in a one party state period. You know, like if we were in like Nebraska or something, maybe we would do that. Um, and, you know, because a lot of times the case that you're talking about where they did pick the spouse, like that was deep south, one party Democratic state. And then you see it still happen in some really red or really blue states because I think. Uh, they appointed, um, oh, D- uh, John Dingle's wife. I think they appointed her after he died. Um, or maybe she just ran for and won. I can't remember which. But e- either way, um, I just don't think they would do that just because of the fact that, one, I think Governor Deal wouldn't do it because <laughs> he seemed like he really wanted to retire. <laughs> and then, two, I think they are looking at this race and the jungle primary nature of it as you have to have one Republican who is the anointed person that at least 80% of the party agrees on, if not more. Otherwise, you might lose the seat. I think if this was a situation where you're going to have a Republican primary and they could do it that way, maybe deal makes sense in that scenario. But I think the jungle primary scenario, uh uh-uh. Because they know Democrats at most are going to have two viable candidates and they're not going to risk having, you know, four solid Republicans who most of the party would say, yeah, they'd be a great senator. Like, they're not going to risk that because that means they could have a scenario where that four split up the vote to an extent that two Democrats are able to be in the runoff by themselves. I just don't think they'll do that. So forgive my ignorance, but I wasn't aware of the wives of senators being appointed, you know, in the event that something terrible happened to the senator. What does that look like? And are they expected just just no politics because they've been around it? Are they basically just fed talking points? Is it purely ceremonial? Like, what does that mean? The honest answer is it really depends. Like when Woodrow Wilson had a stroke, his wife became president, basically, like not actually legally speaking, but like she started running everything and just kind of like whispered to him. 
when uh, then House Majority Leader Hale Boggs died, his wife Lindy Boggs took over. No relation. I know George Wallace's wife was ran for governor, and he basically ran it. You know, while while she was governor in name, he was the actual governor. So one it really of the just worst depends. stories ever is about what? George Wallace's wife. Yeah. Quick quick sidebar on on George Wallace and. Uh, he did probably one of the worst things to his wife that has ever been done in the history of politics, particularly politics in our region. Um, although I don't know, somebody fact check me on that if there was something worse. So George Wallace, if I'm remembering this correctly, Alabama was a state where you couldn't run for reelection. And George Wallace wanted his political machine to continue to control the state of Alabama. So he had his wife, Lurleen Wallace, run for governor basically for him. And then George Wallace could run again, because the rule was you just could not succeed yourself. So you had to skip a term. And during the campaign, Lurleen Wallace got sick. And and she went to the doctor and her husband, George Wallace was with her. And the doctor told her husband that Lurleen Wallace, the wife had cancer. And because they didn't want it to get out, they did not tell Lurleen Wallace that she had cancer. She ended up winning the election and I believe dying in office because her cancer went untreated, all because he wanted his political machine to maintain control of the state of Alabama. So uh, let's close on the one Republican who I think we talked about right when we learned that Governor Kemp was going to get to appoint somebody to this seat, but who, as far as we know, as we're recording on Tuesday, has not applied to be appointed, and that is the Attorney General Chris Carr. What are y'all's reactions to Chris Carr not being in this? And and do we think that for any kind of reason he is maybe holding back, but will sort of throw his application in at the deadline and Governor Kemp knows he's interested in he'll be a candidate, but they're just sort of keeping the political heat of showing he wants a new job off of him for now? Or or do we think that maybe he's actually legitimately not interested? If I had to guess, I think Chris Carr is in the Jan Jones category, but without as much political support. I, I kind of feel like the Republican base is fine with him being attorney general. <laughs> and, you know, they're, you know, they're not going to raise a bunch of hoopla about it. But I feel like Chris Carr is one of the establishment e people that would really, really anger the Republican base and have, you know, have a situation where there are multiple people running in the jungle primary. And I, I, if I had to guess on the reason, that would be the one I would choose. So those are sort of the top tier candidates that are in and a potential top tier candidate that's not, I think people that at least I would put in a second tier at this point and and feel free to disagree with me, either panelists or our audience, is Tom Price, former HHS secretary, former congressman uh, that represented Georgia's sixth congressional district for a long time, and former congressman from Georgia's first congressional district. Uh, Since he has no longer been in Congress, uh, he has become a big supporter of the president on cable TV. But I actually remember him uh, from being one of the most interesting people on TV when he was in Congress, when he was on Stephen Colbert's Better Know a District. But what do we think of this second tier of candidates? Do we think any of them could actually get picked up by by Governor Kemp? And, and what do we think about what they bring to this race if they end up being the ones who are appointed? I think Tom Price is an odd choice indeed. Um, with everything that went down with the Health and Human Services, well, when he was Health and Human Services Secretary with him needing to resign, I just think that there's a lot of baggage that would come with having Price as a potential candidate. And I personally, obviously, I'm not a supporter of Price. I'm a Democrat. But even if I were to try to get behind a Republican candidate, I definitely wouldn't be getting behind Price. There's just too much going on there, too much baggage for us to even, as a state, consider him. Yeah, I would be pretty surprised by uh, Tom Price. Uh, Jack Kingston holds the distinct honor of being my congressman for most of my life, so I also remember Jack Kingston. 
uh, quite well at Mem a lot of times. Um, he he would be an interesting choice just because of the fact that David Perdue beat him last time, and so it would kind of be. I, I guess I would deem this like the Arizona choice that like you get to become a senator because you got in second place. Uh, you know, so you know, and, and you know, I guess there is some logic in that though, in the sense that like. Jack Kingston has ran, run for Senate before. Like, he knows all the places you gotta go. And, like, while he didn't win, like, I mean, he still got a lot of votes in a Republican primary. Uh, you know, he it wasn't a blowout like, you know, Cagle versus Kemp in the runoff. So, I, I mean, Kingston isn't a idiotic choice uh, based on a lot of reasons. And also, Kingston has been a pretty solid defender of President Trump. So if you're going for a you know person who would not piss off the president i feel like kingston is one of those people that you see on tv defending donald trump and we know how important that is to donald trump so uh that there's some logic to his i feel like price is also uh a problem because of the fact that uh trump had to fire him (laughs) i feel like trump is not eager to uh see him there i kind of feel like that would be poo-pooed by trump All right. Well, I think that's a good place to close this out. I think as we tally up the names that we've talked about today, I can think of three who, if they were selected and if things really went south for President Trump, they would probably not be the best choices for Governor Kemp and and one, Jan Jones, who maybe could weather the storm if uh, President Trump, uh, if his approval heads south. Um, So it will be interesting to watch how the governor handicaps those political choices in front of him. But for now, I think we are going to leave it there. Uh, So Luke Boggs, thank you for joining as always. Happy to be here. And Megan, great to have you back this week. Thanks, Kyle. All right, guys, we'll talk to you all next week. Bye, guys. Okay, bye. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.